Our scripture today is 2 Timothy 2.15. And most of us memorized it in, from the old King James Version, which went, study to show thyself approved unto God. But in the new King James translation, it's rendered, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Please be seated. God is good all the time. You sound great. It's a beautiful day outside and uh, we've had a a pretty good week. Of course, remember those who Gary mentioned in prayers. We have several of our members who are mourning uh, loved ones that have passed away, so certainly lift them up in prayers. And we can be thankful that, Lord willing, Tuesday, at least after Tuesday, our televisions, our radio stations will no longer be interrupted by the barrage of political ads. Isn't that great? Amen. Yes, okay. Uh, I always love how they do it, though, because you have folks and, and they'll go, Usually it's a lovely woman's voice overshadowing the ad. This candidate has been so diligent. You know, and it goes on. And then at the end it goes, I'm whoever and I approve this message. Well, of course you approve it. It says all the good things about you. Why don't you tell us the honest truth? So, that, you know, of course you're going to approve that message. Paul, in this section of verses, discusses the one approved of God. Totally different as opposed to someone giving, their, giving themselves their own approval. In this passage, I want you to notice in verses 14 and 25, it begins and ends with a discussion about false teachers. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. In verse 25, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So what if an ad were made about you and about me? A sinner saved by grace, cleansed by the blood of Christ. I'm not where I should be, nor am I where I ought to be, but I thank God that I'm not where I used to be. Isn't that something? Remember when Jesus was baptized and also when he was on that Mount of Transfiguration, the clouds parted and you hear the voice of God This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Would we get that kind of approval if we ran an ad about, or if God ran an ad about us? We strive each day as those who love and fear God to be the people that he would approve. And here we have two contrasting versions, one of those who God wouldn't approve and one of those who God would approve. Obviously, we want to fit into that latter category as opposed to the former. And so we are to diligently present ourselves in an approving manner to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there are really three main portions to this that I could really uh, dig out. The first of which is Paul is encouraging Timothy He says, don't get into a war of words with these folks. Verse 14, he says as much. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Then you look a couple verses down at 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. 
Finally, verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Okay, don't get into a war of words with these people. They are the kind of folks who really want to make things overly complicated. What is it that they do? Well, you got two kinds of people. Uh, let me give you an illustration. Person number one will say something like this. It was a beautiful day in the fall on Thursday. I was driving and I came across thus and such intersection. We had the red light while they had the green light. All of a sudden, they have the red light and we have the green light. And then the head person goes, but one of theirs didn't stop at the red light. Ran right through it, T-boned the car. That's person number one. Person number two, I saw a wreck today. What happened? Somebody ran a red light. It's, <laughs> okay, let me, let me illustrate it a different way. That I'm, I may need to borrow a couch at someone's house after telling it this way. Uh, when my wife and I tell information, I am very concise. She is that first person. She paints a picture, right? I, say, I saw a wreck today. What happened? Somebody ran a red light. She's the one that gives all the details. And, and sometimes she's telling me things and I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to follow and I'm computing and I'm like, where is this going? And sometimes I, much to my own detriment, I go, what are you trying to tell me? You know, it's like I'm getting anxious here. And, and I'll say, what's the point? You know, I, just, I need the point. I don't need the whole, you know, that's just how she is. She likes to tell with details and with everything else. I just like cut right to the chase. Cut right to the chase. These folks, sometimes they think that, you know, in order for you to understand doctrine and understand Jesus and God and Christianity, they've got to use a whole lot of words because they think if they use a whole lot of words, they sound sophisticated. And it's a complex doctrine and they have to go all around the golf course just to get you to where you need to be. One of the greatest pieces of advice Daddy gave me when I became a preacher and several years into ministry he said, you need to be able to explain what you're trying to say to someone who may not have finished high school, who may have no education at all. Don't use these big fancy words. Use words that everybody knows. Every once in a while, I like to use those fancy words because I paid an awful lot at the university to learn them, so I got to trot them out on an occasion. But I remember I was working on my dissertation for my PhD, and we were in Destin uh, taking a break, uh, vacationing down there. And we got to our condo and, and it, uh, well, it wasn't time. We were early. And so I, I said, I saw a Barnes and Noble. Let, let's go to the bookstore. So we go to the bookstore and I walk in and I had a list of about four books that I needed. So I go up to that little help desk and I said, I need these books. Do you have them? So the person, yeah, they take me around. We get all these books. Then I go to check out. And the books were kind of odd, you know, and, and the guy at the cash register, he said, he said, these are, these are interesting books. I said, yeah, I'm using them to work on my dissertation. He said, oh, what's it about? Well, I started explaining it to him. And about 30 seconds in, this look came over his face that said, I wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> and I learned right then and there, I'm like, okay, boil it down. And so if I was speaking to my professor, I could give that long drawn out description, but everybody else, I'd just say Christian hospitality in the first few centuries of the church. And people go, oh, 
one professor, as he was reading through my dissertation, he used a word I'd never heard before. And he just put very concisely, too much bloviating. Y'all know what that word is? I had to look it up. Bloviating means using excessive words when a few will do. And I hit reply, I said, well, I am a preacher, so that's part of it. But these folks, they, they, they draw it all out. They got to use a whole bunch of words. And, you know, don't get into a war of words with him. Don't get into the mudslinging contest with him. It's not going to avail to anything. Nothing good can come out of it. So, so just stick to what's basic. And, and, and don't even debate them, don't even argue them. And, and you know this, there are people that you can reason with, you can talk to, they can ask questions, you can ask questions, you can get somewhere. And then there are those that it's best just not. Because it's not going to be productive at all. Proverbs 10:19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. A.W. Tozer wrote in one of his books, this is a good quotation, I want to read this little paragraph that he wrote. We have gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of scripture, science, and human sentiment that is true to none of its ingredients because each one works to cancel the other out. Little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need a return to the gentle dogmatism and smiles that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Maybe he was bloviating there, but essentially he was saying that we need to be doctrinal people. And there are some folks who do not like doctrine. You may have heard people make the statement, give me Jesus and nothing else. But you cannot separate the truths about Jesus from him. And those truths about Jesus, about the church, about God and salvation, all of those are doctrine. And there is right doctrine, there is wrong doctrine. But these folks think, if I just use a whole bunch of fancy words and draw it out, then I will be seen as credible. Don't get into a war of words with them, Timothy. They're causing disruption, and they are progressing, but they're progressing in the wrong direction. Look at verse 17. Paul names a couple of them. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, what you may not be fully aware of, if you'll go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1:20, speaking about those who have rejected the faith, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
So Paul has already addressed the matter with Hymenaeus, but he's still the problem by the time he writes 2 Timothy. Maybe it was that Timothy hadn't fully dealt with the matter. Maybe it was that Timothy, like so many of us, we don't really want to upset people. We don't want to offend anybody, whatever the case is. So I really don't want to say or confront or whatever the case may be. But what Paul says in 1 Timothy is that Hymenaeus has been put out, excommunicated, withdrawn from because of his false teaching. And we see here in the second letter that one of the things he was teaching was that the resurrection had already come. There, there was a segment of, of people in, the, in early Christianity that believed that the resurrection was when a person was baptized. Because after all, we are reenacting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when you come up out of those waters, they said, that's the resurrection. Neglecting that when Jesus Christ comes back, there will be a resurrection of the dead. The righteous will go on to eternal life. The wicked will be judged and they will be condemned to eternal suffering. That was the resurrection that many neglected. And, and, and so Hymenaeus and Philetus are of that sort, straying from the truth, saying that that resurrection has already passed. And you know what? Some people bought it. That's always the thing. You have some who buy into it. If you ever hear something that sounds new, ask if it's new to you. If it's new to you, that's one thing. But if it is new as in it hasn't been said, there could be a problem. And sometimes preachers like to say uh, certain things in a different way and there's nothing wrong with saying it the way that it's always been said. Because when you try to, you know, what's the old saying? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Uh, some people think, well, I've got to refine or redefine or whatever the case is. And it confuses folks. And it can lead some astray. And there are some who here have been led astray as a result of what they were preaching. Sometimes people don't want to call out a false teaching. Even in Christianity, many are pluralists. Well, you have your church, I have mine. We, we're all, I hear this all the time. We're all trying to get to the same place. We're just going about it a different way. You ever heard that? People say that all the time. If you contend a doctrine, you're sometimes thought to be arrogant. And if you wish to uphold the apostolic doctrines of Christianity and call others to abandon the changes fostered over the centuries, you're called exclusivist. I do believe that Jesus was an exclusivist. He said to those in his Sermon on the Mount, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. When someone says, oh, you're such a narrow-minded Christian, I'm supposed to be. Because the way is narrow. It's not broad, it's narrow. But everyone wants to just sunshine and rainbows, lollipops and care bears, everything's going to be just fine. On and on it goes. But you cannot, I cannot, separate the truths about the Lord from Him. And if it is disclosed in Scripture, as most are, that's the basis.
nothing else. But there is hope. There is hope. In verse 19, the solid foundation stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. I love that Paul used that passage because uh, it's a quotation of Numbers 16, verse 5, and the story of Korah's rebellion. Korah was a Levite, and uh, he wasn't too thrilled at how Moses was leading things. So he and a bunch of others, they decided, we're going to rebel, and we're going to create this own structure. You know, we're going to have different leaders. We're going to shake things up a bit. Moses has been here long enough. It's time that he move on to greener pastures. You know, all the same things that people say about needing new elders, deposing old elders, same thing with preachers and the like. There's always something, some justification to take the folks that are there and oust them if they've not done any wrong. So Korah leads this rebellion, challenging Moses' authority but many remain faithful to Moses because they remember seeing the site at Mount Sinai. How Moses went up on the mountain and there were the clouds and the thunders and the lightnings and the darkness and the rumblings of the presence of God. Moses went, Moses came back, Moses went several times. He took some of the, uh, some of the elders of Israel up there. They remember seeing that and seeing that Moses was the one chosen by God. And so Moses said to those, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Even amidst all the troubles, you still have some of the Ephesian church who are still faithful. Sometimes the negative can overshadow the positive, And sometimes the controversy is more noticed than peace and stability. But he goes on now in verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also vessels of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, Peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach. Patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul was hoping to restore those who had strayed. It wasn't an issue of us versus them. It was an issue of sound doctrine has to be, it has to be upheld, it has to be taught, it has to combat false doctrine. But a part of sound doctrine is the heart of God, and the heart of God seeks sinners. The heart of God seeks those who have strayed from the truth, those who have abandoned Christ. That is sound doctrine too. That's why he says to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. 
and all the, the rest that he said, if perhaps God will grant them repentance. God doesn't just love the one who is in his will. He doesn't just love the one who, who preaches his will. He loves the one who isn't, but he's hoping that they will come to be in. That's our job. That's our work. In 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 5, Paul refers to the work we do as the ministry of reconciliation. It can be rare when a couple has had a, a fallout or decided to separate. It can be rare that they would reconcile. But it does happen. Sometimes it does. And it takes the denial of self and seeking the, the best interest of the other in order for the reconciliation process to occur. There is, and I've told this before, I recall, there is a, uh, a culture over in the, the Middle East, I forget the specific tribe, but whenever you have had two parties, one who has hurt the other or one who is somehow or another offended or, or, or whatever, there's a custom where a neutral party will bring both of the parties together, and they do this at a meal. And, of course, imagine being called to a dinner table and seated right against you is the person that maybe you hurt or that hurts you the most. And, of course, each of them can justify their own actions, inactions, words, or silence. But the mediator sits there, serves the meal, and they're passing plates back and forth, eating. Afterwards, the mediator begins to mediate. What has brought us here? Each person gets to speak. And the mediator, the reason they've come to that table is because they have agreed to tell the full story, to leave it in the hands of the mediator, and to abide by whatever the mediator decides. And so if the mediator decides you need to pay them X amount or you need to apologize to them or whatever it is, they are bound because of this custom to do it. And once they meet the conditions of restitution, it can never be brought up again. The work that the mediator is doing is reconciling two people who have grown apart, who have been thrust apart, for whatever circumstances. The reason we need to be reconciled to the Lord, every single one of us, is because we have separated ourselves from Him because of our sinfulness. We're born into a world that plenty of bad things happen. We are born having natures that are selfish, naturally so. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want anyone else telling us want to, what to do. And it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. And so we have alienated ourselves from the Lord because of our sins. Jesus has put himself in the position of mediator, for there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And what he wants to do is take us, the party who has offended God, and through his blood and sacrifice, reconcile us to God, having put behind us all the sins of the past. Not just those of us who are not Christians, but even those of us who are Christians and may not be living in such a way to present ourselves approved of God. Reconciliation, the bringing back together.
There's a story I want to read to you that I forget the name of the man who told it, but I thought it was a pretty good story. He says, years ago when I lived just outside New York City, my wife and I received a lot of visitors. One of our favorite things to do was to take our guests into the city to see the sights. Uh, Usually this included a trip to Chinatown. The food was great and our guests always enjoyed the unique gift shops we found there. Without a doubt, the most popular gift item was always the $10 Rolex watch. Now, those who may not know, a Rolex watch apparently can cost in the tens of hundreds of thousands. Now, if you'll go to Walmart, you can get a $10 watch. It tells time just as great as a Rolex. But because it has such worth and esteem, these folks wanted their $10 Rolex. He goes on with the story. Virtually all of our guests went home with at least one. They looked real, so long as you didn't look too closely. But you couldn't rely on one to keep accurate time, not even close. As far as watches go, they weren't worth the $10. These fake Rolexes, in parentheses he has Folexes, are big sellers for one reason. Somewhere other than in Chinatown, there are real Rolexes. If there weren't real ones somewhere, there wouldn't be a market for the fake ones. Jesus warned his followers that there would be no shortage of false prophets in the world. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are wolves in sheep's clothing in the church. And we certainly shouldn't allow them to cause us to question the truth of the gospel. Christians exist because the real thing exists. Forgeries are never made of forgeries. They are not the truth but they are proof of the truth. These in Ephesus teaching the false things that they were teaching, and part of it we know is they believed that the resurrection had already occurred. Part of it was leading others astray. There have been a few times that I've known of churches splitting one particular congregation, the last congregation that we were members of after we had left, the youth minister who had been there for a long time, he wanted to do a specific ministry. He wanted the church to fund the entire thing, but he did not want to be subject to the elders. And his entire time of being there, they had always, within reason, given him whatever he wanted and you know, because he had great ideas on doing minister, ministry and reaching the lost and reaching those disenchanted. But on this occasion, they said no. And so they talked about it, and he decided that he was just going to quit. And he did. But the way he quit, he led people to believe that, uh, you know, the elders had treated him, mistreated him a certain way. And, and because of that, you had a good portion of the church that went with that. And those that remained, they were sympathetic to that, and some eventually left, but some remained. The root of that was selfishness. It was just plain selfishness. When you and I come here, I hope our attitudes are we come here to give. We come here to give our worship to God. We come here to give encouragement to one another. We come here to give. 
Some people walk in and they say, what can I get? And that's not the purpose of the assembly. The assembly is to glorify God, to edify one another. We give. And if by giving we get happiness and satisfaction and a blessing from that, then that's exactly how it's supposed to be. But we stick to the simple doctrines of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He was born of a virgin, that He began ministering, performed many miracles and wonders. He healed the afflicted, cured the sick, drove demons out of those who were possessed. He was crucified by the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate at the urging of the Jewish leaders. And after his crucifixion, he was taken down and he was buried in a borrowed grave. Could you imagine the feeling of those Christians on that Friday and the Sabbath the next day? They had pinned all their hopes and dreams to Jesus, but now it looked like all hope was lost. After the Sabbath on the first day of the week, those women go to prepare and anoint the body of Jesus. But the tomb is empty because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that resurrection is the key factor in our faith. If you were to go to the tomb of Buddha, Buddha is still in that tomb. If you were to go to the tomb of Muhammad, Muhammad is still in that tomb. And on and on with all religious leaders. But you go to the tomb of Jesus, it's empty because He rose from the dead, and by His resurrection we have forgiveness of sins. We have the hope of eternal life if we would but reconcile through Jesus ourselves to God. To begin the walk as a Christian is to have faith, believing that Jesus is God's Son, confessing that faith, being buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. For the Christian, if we have strayed from the truth, if we have gotten caught up in all the words of others, we need only return to the Lord. Just as that loving father was waiting on his prodigal son, so our loving God waits on those who wish to return in repentance. And if there are any here who fit into either of those categories, if we can minister to you, we will do so. You can come to the front as we stand together and sing.